Welcome to the American College of Emergency Physicians eQual Network series on the Opioid Initiative, and I'm your host, Michelle Lin. This series focuses on reducing opioid-associated harm for our emergency department patients. And in this podcast, I'll help distill webinar pearls from opioid and pain management experts to answer burning questions that us frontline clinicians may have. Today's podcast features Dr. Andrew Herring, who is the medical director of Highland Hospital's Substance Use Disorder Treatment Program and the associate director for emergency medicine research at Highland. He's also the principal investigator for the California ED Bridge Emergency Buprenorphine Treatment Program. Today, we have a doozy of a program for you. It's chock full of great practical pearls and things to consider that may actually change your practice. So let's launch right into this, and today we're talking on treating pain in patients with opioid use disorders. So now don't lie to me, but have you heard quote-unquote a friend in the ED say this before several years ago when managing patients in acute pain? Get to a Dilaudid and a Benadryl chaser. Listen to what Dr. Herring has to say about this. That was the state-of-the-art care not too long ago where we really had the hope that the way to treat pain was to escalate opioids, that if two didn't work, then four didn't work, then you would use four. If four didn't work, you could use eight and keep going up the ladder. Fortunately, it just turned out that didn't work. As a pain physician, if that did work, that would be fantastic. My job would be amazing because I could just roll in and recommend more opioids. Unfortunately, what we saw was that people did not actually have much improvement in their pain as we'd like to, as we would have hoped. And they started developing all kinds of problems. This is not simply dependency and addiction, but they started having more pain. This paradoxical response by which increasing the opioid exposure led to worsening pain both acutely and then chronically down the line. We think this has something to do with this idea of opioid-induced hyperalgesia. That's a fundamental concept when treating patients who have opioid use disorders, whether dependency or addiction. So now it's a wide the accepted tenant of pain medicine is that you're going to try to reduce the total amount of exposure to opioids, not just for folks with opioid use disorder, but with everyone who's coming in for an operation. This has been protocolized as something called ERAS, or Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, where the principle is a multimodal approach where you take a multitude of medications, you use them at a relatively smaller dosage, in combination so that you can minimize the side effects of any one component of this cocktail and maximize the benefit. This has not only been codified in the perioperative literature, but it's also entered into the emergency medicine canon. So the ASEP policy statements on optimizing treatment of acute pain in the emergency department is basically a prescription of how do you treat opioid use disorder patients with acute pain? And the fundamental thing, again, is using multimodal analgesia. So we've just been introduced to two key terms here, opioid-induced hyperalgesia and ERAS, enhanced recovery after surgery. Keep these in mind for later. For us in the emergency department, we actually have a really wide palette of things to use. This, the emergency department is one of the most flexible, dynamic places to do pain medicine anywhere in the medical system. The monitoring available in the emergency department is fantastic. You can use ketamine, you can use IV lidocaine, you can use acetaminophen and regional anesthesia, ultrasound. It's all right there at your fingertips. So that is the basis. 
is going to be NSAIDs, acetaminophen, low-dose or analgesic dose ketamine, and intravenous lidocaine, regional anesthesia, and then one other piece that this policy statement didn't talk a lot about is just the role of gabapentinoids. And that's really what you have to work with when using multimodal analgesia. All right. So what I'm getting so far is that the anatomical components of pain is multi-receptor, multi-pathway, and multi-structural. It's not just one angry nerve receptor terminal screaming for help, so to speak. Let's hear Andrew's thoughts on this. There really is this complex interaction where a signal comes usually from the outside. It goes through an afferent nerve in the periphery, goes to the spinal cord, gets analyzed, processed in the spinal cord, sent up the up the spinal cord to the brain where it goes under a whole other set of analyzing and processing and eventually producing this subjective experience of what we call pain. It means that that complex system has multiple places that you can target it from the going down from the brain to the spinal cord, to the peripheral nerves themselves, to the actual tissue around the nerves. So there's a huge canvas really to kind of paint our multimodal picture here with our various interventions, some of which are pharmacologic and some of which are not. Things like cognitive behavioral therapy and other distraction and these other things really have a very strong evidence base behind them. I really like how Dr. Herring summarizes how we have a whole canvas of options to break or address the pain pathways. Let's talk more about the concept now of opioid-induced hyperalgesia. What is it? Why is it important? And why does it sound like you're saying that opioids are causing more pain? What is up with that? This is really the fundamental thing that, that you have to have your patients and your providers really wrap their head around is how can something that produces so much relief of suffering, so much analgesia, paradoxically also cause pain? Well, the basic idea is that pain is like any other system in the body, and it it has a homeostasis, where if you feel no pain at all, you're from a teleologic standpoint, you're not going to do well survival-wise. You need pain to inform you of discomfort and injury, all kinds of things, so that you're safe in this physical world that we live in. Now, conversely, if you have nothing but horrible, severe, intractable pain at all times, you also aren't going to be a a functional organism in in the environment. So your body is a complicated system that's evolved to create a balance. So opioids in particular are fundamental to this. And part of why they're such a miraculous uh, medication is that they do fit very closely with our own endogenous system of endogenous opioids. So When you have a dose of morphine, for example, there are the metabolites that preferentially go to, or the M6G will preferentially go to the new opioid receptor. That's the good one. That's when we think of as causing relief, anxiolysis, euphoria, analgesia, all the good stuff. And that's going to produce a positive pain experience. Now, at the same time, both components of that metabolite and other metabolites go directly to the counterbalancing system. And this is a hyperalgesic system that produces descending amplification of pain. The classic example would be a phantom limb, where your brain can produce severe, intractable, horrible pain in a limb that physically does not exist, is no longer there. You you feel the pain exactly as if that limb were there. So that occurs through this descending amplification of pain, which we 
think is primarily modulated by two main things, which would be microglia, which are basically all this soup of supportive cells around the neurons, as well as the NMDA glutamate system. So metabolites from the morphine will go and trigger that system, basically causing an amplification of pain. So in the acute phase, you feel the morphine, but you don't really realize underneath it, the hyperalgesic response is increasing and becoming stronger. So then over time, what happens is your subjective experience goes from initially being fantastic. It's all good. Your first dose of opioids is, if you don't have a nausea or some other reaction to anything, it's all good from a pain perspective. Then over time, what you'll see is it becomes your duration of effect and the potency of effect becomes less and less. As underneath it, you have this hyperalgesic baseline. So and as soon as that acute dose wears off, you're left with this baseline of pain. Now, we've probably all seen in the emergency department patients who are just feel like if you touch them, they jump out, out of their chair. The blood pressure cuff goes off and they're screaming. They're not faking it, right? Those patients are in a hyperalgesic state. And this occurs with chronic exposure to opioids. Um, it occurs with chronic pain. It can occur with a subjective experience or catastrophizing state. So what people end up doing is chasing, you know, very rationally looking for relief. And this relief will come with only escalating doses to overcome the tolerance and the hyperalgesia, which are two connected but different things. And then the problem, right, is you, get, you arrive at a fundamental feeling where the therapeutic dose needed to overcome the hyperalgesia and tolerance to produce subjective and clinically significant pain is awfully, awfully close or even basically at the threshold for producing respiratory depression. And that's why so many very well-intentioned doctors and physicians get into so much trouble with opioids because as those doses escalate. And there's also why you can have someone who is on an unbelievable amount of opioids, you know, hundreds and hundreds of milligrams, thousands even, and their primary complaint is incredibly pain. And so this is how it works. Amen, Dr. Herring. We do indeed see chronic pain patients on ginormous doses of opioids. This construct of simultaneously triggering mu pain receptors and the counterbalancing microglial and the NMDA glutamate system results in opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Okay, I think I get it. It's a balance that has been tipped out of scale for many of our opioid-dependent patients. How do we break the cycle then? You've got to use this multimodal stuff because if you just try to attack the mu receptor, it's not going to work for you. This is complicated. The patients get confused by it. The providers get confused by it. Uh, this is something that we use at Highland where we kind of upfront try to set expectations with our patients and let them know what we're doing and, and why we're doing it. So always start with the simple stuff. Don't ignore the importance of positioning an injury, of moving, you know, having an infected hand be moved out of a dependent position, icing, applying um, a splint or compressive things, making their environment comfortable, making them feel cared for. All those things have an incredible impact on your subjective experience of pain. And then find the easy one is acetaminophen. It's a fallacy to think that someone who has who uses heroin and has a broken leg won't benefit from Tylenol. How would you give them Tylenol? They need something stronger. Well, it's just important to remember that Tylenol has a really strong evidence base in addition to all these other things. So if you just gave someone a gram of Tylenol and walked away, that's not going to be enough. But if you use a gram of Tylenol along with all these other things, it's going to provide significant additional synergistic analgesia. So don't leave that off. 
Next, you're, you're kind of going up the ladder, right? These drugs all start to have a little bit more side effect profile associated with them. But the most common one, of course, is your COX inhibitors, your ibuprofen being the classic ones. Ibuprofen, Ketorolac, these all play a really huge role. Basically, everyone should get them who has acute pain unless there's a specific contraindication. I'm not saying giving to everyone. Finally, next, along with that, and that level of care, would be regional anesthesia. So anyone who has something that is amenable to a regional anesthesia should get it. This is a godsend for patients with who have opiate use disorder, hyperalgesia, and chronic pain. So if it's an abscess in an arm, use a brachial plexus block. Rib fracture, use a serratus anterior plane block to do that. So that should be a really crucial thing to develop in your armamentarium. Now, you don't do that alone. Again, you're going to add on your acetaminophen, your ibuprofen, and then do the block. Finally, gabapentinoids are really fascinating. So they're alpha-gamma subunit calcium channel blockers, and they play a role in just inhibiting the transmission of pain. So they're originally developed as anti-epileptics, but if you kind of think of, about it in terms of this complex neuroexcitatory state around hyperalgesia and pain transmission, it, it does make sense. So there's a real role for anti-epileptics. Now, you're not starting gabapentin on people. Please do not start gabapentin on your patients. I repeat, do not start gabapentin on your patients. But it's a very important tool to use acutely. So one doses, two doses, that type of thing. If someone has a rib fracture, go ahead and give them 600 milligrams of gabapentin as part of your baseline cocktail, which again is acetaminophen, NSAIDs, and then gabapentinoids, mostly gabapentin. The dosing is a little wacky. We're not exactly sure what the perfect dose is. It's somewhere between 300 and 1,200 milligrams. I usually land around 600. Be careful with patients who have any kind of renal issues there or certainly end-stage renal, as gabapentin is almost exclusively renally cleared. Let's pause here a sec and just appreciate the pearls that Dr. Herring just dropped on us. There are four points to consider when managing patients with opioid use disorders. One, arrange the patient in positions of comfort. Great, that seems simple. Two, use acetaminophen and NSAIDs like ibuprofen or ketorolac. Three, regional block is your patient's best friend. And four, something I haven't used acutely before but may start considering now are the gabapentinoids. This last option of gabapentinoids then got me thinking, what other adjuncts am I not using in the ED but should start considering? Fortunately, Andrew covered this topic. Let's take a listen. Other medications in this little realm are going to be IV lidocaine, magnesium, clonidine, and dexamethasone. So they're all a very specific indication. The one that's really a godsend for patients with opioid-induced hyperalgesia or opiate use disorder is clonidine. It's an alpha agonist. It really goes to this neuroexcitatory state that comes along with withdrawal and pain and is experienced both as analgesic and ankylosis. So that combination of gabapentin and clonidine, acetaminophen, ibuprofen is actually going to get a lot for your money um, when you're treating even patients who have very severe pain, you know, chronic pain on high-dose opioids, and they've got an acute injury. You think this is, couldn't possibly work, but it actually does. Then your next sort of big stage, your big sort of group of medications to use, your big gun, so to speak, would be buprenorphine, morphine being the archival opioid. You can substitute dilaudid, whatever you want in that category, and ketamine. Okay, so it sounds like Dr. Herring is advocating for baseline cocktail and acute pain management with ibuprofen, acetaminophen, gabapentin, and clonidine. This is going to peel off a ton of your patients. They're going to feel a lot of relief with this. 
you'd be surprised how many patients will do much better with this than with, say, 10 of morphine. So we talked about a variety of agents. Does the route of administration make a difference? What's your approach? Always remember to use oral when you can. In the ER, it sometimes gets misconstrued with, quote, blowing someone off. But to have insight in that there is a psychological state called catastrophizing that has both a severity scale to it and is situationally located, meaning that when people come to the ER, they often are in a state of crisis. They will report their pain as being 10 because they feel it as being 10. They feel that it might really be associated with something dire that's about to have to them. And it really does drive that pain intensity. So calming them down, showing them what you're going to do, and not necessarily jumping to a parenteral medication is key. So always start with orals if you can. Ah, catastrophizing the pain. I hadn't heard of that phrase before, but you know what? I like it. So does that mean if their pain is 20 out of 10, then is that like apocalypticizing? I digress. My inner monologue is having a field day, but let's get back on track. So basically start first with oral meds if possible. Check. Let's switch gears and talk about parenteral agents, though. What about the hot medication that's right now all the rage right now, ketamine, our NMDA receptor antagonist? Ketamine is right to the heart of this issue of hyperalgesia. This is the big gun miracle weapon for opioid tolerant patients. The problem with ketamine is it makes you hallucinate, right? It does. This whole issue of subdissociative dosing on these various things is a little confusing. Is basically at any level, ketamine will start to produce hallucinations. Now, these hallucinations can be very mild, right? And people can enjoy them or be bothered by them, but it's really always there. As soon as you start to get a therapeutic level, it's there. That means that the key thing is not to avoid these or try to pretend they don't happen, but you have to tell your patient ahead of time. Never, 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 never shotgun ketamine on a patient that doesn't know what's coming. Don't hide it. Don't play it down. Don't be like, oh, you know, some people feel a little weird. No, be very clear. Like, this is an incredibly powerful medication. It's a wonderful medication for pain, but it produces powerful emotion that changes your, how you see and hear. I just go over the top and tell them, look, you might see my face just melt in front of you. I really exaggerate it so that when something does happen, they're not scared. When you do that, you actually find that the, the rate of adverse events, a rate of events where they really didn't like it, is quite low. Whereas that same population, if you just didn't tell them what was coming and they thought they were going to get morphine and they got ketamine, they might think they were dying, right? And they would really flip out. So that's the most important point. The dosing is really pretty simple. About one milligram per minute is the rate to use. So 50 milligrams over 15 minutes is a standard thing for a 70 kilo person. Then you can put them on a drip. So if someone has, let's say, a cancer exacerbation, they've got mess their spine, they're just in horrible pain, their oxy's not working, they're dependent on it, they've run out early, and they're asking for dilaudid, starting that person with a 0.3 mg per kg over 15 minutes, initial analgesic bolus, and following that with 0.3 to 1 milligrams per kilogram per hour for the next couple hours could produce not only acute benefit, but they get a clear antihyperalgesic, antidepressive effect that'll last for two weeks, even longer sometimes with patients. It's really powerful. You never have to give any of these medications. This is to remember. So you will hear about ketamonsters. So ketamonsters are people who come in seeking ketamine. It's real. It happens. I've seen it. 
just remember that if you feel like anyone has an unhealthy relationship with any powerful psychoactive drug, you're never responsible. You never have to give someone ketamine. It's a rare event, but it does occur. There's really no situation by which ketamine jumps out of the bottle um, and has a population level impact on substance use disorders like, say, benzodiazepines, alcohol, tobacco, or opioids. So it's always going to be a niche problem, but, but it does occur and it's something to be aware of. So if you don't need to use a powerful psychoactive parental medication, don't. Ketamine. Sounds like with great power comes great responsibility. Don't forget to warn patients of the hallucinatory effects. Melting your face off. I guess that's one way to warn them. Can we review the dosing again one more time? Ketamine is dosed at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram at a rate of 1 milligram per minute. And so for those of you who are like me and just had your math brain shut down, a good starting number as a baseline to remember is think 15, 1, 5 milligrams of ketamine over 15, 1, 5 minutes bolus, then drip at the same 15 milligrams per hour, or you can go a little higher up to one milligram per kilo per hour. And from ketamine, let's move to another non-opioid parental agent, and that is lidocaine. Let's hear Dr. Herring's thoughts on this agent. Lidocaine is a fascinating drug. Again, it's sort of this anti-epileptic kind of thing where it's affecting the sodium channels throughout the transmission from the afferent nerve all the way through the spinal cord and up into the brain. It has this dulling effect all through. So you can think of these particularly sharp pains, these burns, um, neuropathy. This is the classic indication for, for lidocaine. In, interestingly, it's entered emergency medicine, not through treatment of neuropathy and things like that, but through studies around renal colic. There are some specific actions of lidocaine with smooth muscle, the ureters and things like that, that do create some specificity. But I largely see that as an experimental happenstance. It ended up in renal colic. Really, its applicability is much broader than that. And like I said, the vast majority of the literature is actually for large um, abdominal surgery, visceral pain, and neuropathy is the classic one in pain medicine. So my biggest successes that I've seen with IV lidocaine um, have been with things like a ischemia. So a patient who had a near critical ischemia of the lower limb, an intractable horrible pain. For that patient, sometimes IV lidocaine can really be a godsend and actually treat their pain really completely. So we've had some really big wins with that. We've also just used lidocaine broadly without really trying to parse out one type of pain with the other, which is very practical for ER practice. And we found that an initial dose of lidocaine is about similar to initial dose of morphine. It has a the similar efficacy, similar tolerability, and actually reduced incidence of adverse events. The things you need to watch out for are high-grade AV blocks. So if someone has a known cardiac dysrhythmia, just leave that alone. Don't, don't go there with lidocaine. Is it going to cause a problem? Very unlikely it will, but it is an area of concern that you should just avoid. The dosing is, is pretty straightforward. There's some very good review articles that are out on this. And it's one milligram per kilogram bolus over usually over 10 or 15 minutes, followed by 1.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. A typical protocol is that you put the person on the monitor for the first 15 minutes or that initial bolus. If there's no cardiac events, then you're fine. You go on from that with the infusion. And again, you probably want to run the infusion for about an hour at least. And like ketamine, there is clearly some interaction that occurs with the ramped up pain system that you can get some benefit that, oh, that lasts beyond the analgesic effect of the medication. So it's something that you're going to see works quite well. Um, and again, it's preferentially should be used in opioid tolerant hyperalgesic patients. Magnesium is a, you know, some people really believe in magnesium, sort of a cure-all. 
its potency is going to be much less, you know, clinically when you experience it. It certainly can be part of this puzzle. It has real effect in things like migraine and some of these visceral uh, migraine type disorders that occur in the abdomen, which we actually see not infrequently in the emergency department, and many of these folks are opioid tolerant. So that's just another thing to keep in your bag. Now, dexmetomidine, basically IV clonidine, it's usually restricted to ICU or sort of critical care circumstances, but just remember that's an option for you. Then finally, the antipsychotics. So haldoperidol, olanzapine, thorazine, quapromazine, all, all of these things. There is a, a synergistic effect with other opioids as well as the primary analgesia and addresses sedation. So that's a whole other world of medications that most specifically for us would occur in visceral pain syndromes or quote-unquote sick with vomiting, cannabinoid, hyperemesis, these types of things. Great. So we've covered parenteral pain medications, which includes ketamine, lidocaine, magnesium, dexmetomidine, and antipsychotics. Let's move on now to regional anesthesia. Regional anesthesia should be a core part of your practice. The fundamental idea is you use your ultrasound, you use your anatomic wizardry to locate a needle along the conductive pathway between an injury and the spinal cord. So you might be targeting a specific tiny little nerve. You might be targeting a plexus of nerves, so the brachial plexus or an ulnar nerve, or you might be targeting a whole plane. So a lot of these plane blocks, trans-abdominus plane block or serratus anterior plane block, where you have an interfascial plane that is, that is an arborized network of nerves and you're putting lidocaine or cupivacaine or glupivacaine or whatever you're going to use into this big plane. These are fantastic skill. You have to learn how to do it. You got to be able to recognize the anatomy. You got to dose things right. You got to have good hands and be able to put that needle exactly where you want it. It's got a ramp up skill. But once you've got it, along with ketamine, this is the big thing you can do to control someone who has difficult to treat opioid tolerant pain. The main thing is to work out how you're going to train yourself and your group and how you're going to coordinate with your orthopedist and other surgeons that are involved in the care. So that's a whole subject in itself. And I'll just leave it at that, is that, that I can't imagine practicing in the emergency department with, with opioid use disorder patients without this tool, because it's just such a marvelous way to treat them. Andrew here, he makes a really strong case for and is challenging emergency physicians to up their ketamine and regional anesthesia game. Who's in? Okay, now let's talk about the next cool kid on the block, buprenorphine. Let's listen to Dr. Herring's thoughts on this drug. Buprenorphine is commonly known as Suboxone. The buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist, really a fascinating medicine that comes into medical practice as an analgesic. And it's only later that it becomes used for opioid use disorder and maintenance treatment. So you can combine buprenorphine with full new opioids. So basically, you can combine morphine and buprenorphine. It's not a complete act and you can't combine these things, which is sort of new for most people that are practicing in the addiction world and primary care and emergency department. But in perioperative medicine, you can mix them up together. So if you've got someone on bupe, keep them on bupe, right? That's the basic message. If you've got someone on bupe, keep them on bupe. doesn't matter. So you've got a person who is on 24 milligrams buprenorphine a day. They break their hip, they come in, keep them on the bupe. If you need to, you can lower the dose. You keep the intervals smaller. So you might go from once a day dosing to Q4 hour dosing. Some people are keeping the dose uh, completely at their baseline, so at 24. Others are bringing it down more toward the 12 region. Others are bringing it all the way down to 8. We don't really know what's exactly the right level. I think in that space of not knowing, 
we're just really moving toward just keeping them on it. Now, the other thing to understand there is that that's your baseline. And then on top of that, you got to do all this multi-multi-mold stuff. If it's a fracture, you can block it. You're going to block it. You're going to give them the gabapentin. You're going to give them the clonidine and do all these other things on top of it and with your buprenorphine on the base. It's a, a good IV medicine. So a typical flow for someone who comes in, they're using heroin and they have an abscess and you want to turn that into an opportunity to switch from their heroin onto buprenorphine, you can actually put on your multimodal, give them the acetaminophen, give them the ibuprofen, give them some gabapentin, give them some clonidine, and then actually hit them with, or administer, I should say, some IV buprenorphine, which I've found you can administer earlier in withdrawal than you can the sublingual. But do a block, drain the abscess. By the time that's all said and done, they're probably ready to start escalating sublingual buprenorphine before discharge. So there's a little pathway there where you use IV buprenorphine for, as an analgesic burst, usually 0.3 milligrams IV is the dose. Comes on a little bit slower than morphine, but lasts much longer, more six, eight hours. So just to reemphasize that buprenorphine entered in the medical literature as an analgesic compared to fentanyl, it is about 30 to 40 times more potent than morphine. And you start getting the analgesia at these very low receptor occupancies. So that's why it's a tiny dose of 0.3 milligrams can give you a strong analgesic dose. Think about that compared to opioid maintenance therapy, where you're giving people 24 milligrams once a day, which is just obviously much, much higher. That's because with the maintenance therapy, you're really looking to occupy 70, 80% of the receptors so you prevent craving. You produce opioid blockades. So if they do, do use um, illicit opioids on top of buprenorphine, they don't get the euphoric reward. That's very different than analgesia that occurs at these much lower doses. This slide is just reemphasizing this point I've, I've made around the receptors so that the analgesic dose is going to occur down there at BUP2 kind of area where you've really got a lot of free opioid receptors and those free opioid receptors allow you to mix buprenorphine. So if you've got buprenorphine as a base, you can add on hydromorphone as a breakthrough for pain. That's okay to do. As you get to the higher dose, you lose that opportunity. This is the principle of using a moderate or lower dose for, and combining it with multimodal analgesia as a standard treatment pathway for patients on buprenorphine maintenance coming in for either acute injury or to the perioperative. Well, it seems like we're all going to need to be better on managing patients who are maintenance buprenorphine. But I wonder, what is Dr. Herring's mental model and how to approach such patients? And fortunately, he provided a great reference from a 2018 pain med journal article called Patients Maintained on Buprenorphine for Opioid Use Disorders Should Continue Buprenorphine Through the Perioperative Period by Dr. Lemke et al. from the Stanford Pain and Addiction Collaborative. What's the bottom line here? Keep them on the bup. This protocol takes them down to 12 milligrams once a day. But that, again, is just a judgment call. Some centers are keeping it full dose. Others are taking to eight. We're really not sure. I think the simplest thing is to keep it basically roughly the same, but then split it up and divide doses every four to six hours. You mentioned buprenorphine in the IV form, but what are your thoughts on the sublingual form, which is what I more commonly see in the emergency department? Can it be used for acute pain? What about for opioid-naive patients? Just to warn against the use of sublingual buprenorphine for acute pain, in an opioid-naive patient, it's going to be a lot of buprenorphine, like two milligrams is a lot. So people will feel free dazed and maybe a little nauseated, and it comes on really slowly and lasts forever. So as much as I love buprenorphine for everything, sublingual formulation for acute pain is something we really quite haven't figured out how to use right, and I don't think it's going to have a big role. So for acute pain, stick with the IV and otherwise using it as a baseline medication to other things in patients that are already on it. 
So that sounds like a big no for sublingual buprenorphine for acute pain. Let's wrap it up now. Here are some final thoughts from Dr. Herring. So you're going to use all these things we talked about. I've gone over ad nauseum at this point. Your acetaminophen, ibuprofen, gabapentinoids, and regional anesthesia, then potentially IV lidocaine, potentially ketamine, and then you keep the buprenorphine on throughout that stay. So as soon as you're done, then you're going to escalate up your buprenorphine as quickly as you can after surgery so that basically they have an opioid agonist as a breakthrough, and then you wean that down and you wean back up the buprenorphine as they're leaving the door. So that wraps us up as a whirlwind tour, pain medicine as it relates to patients with opiate use disorder, all these various tools, which each one of them could be potentially pretty complicated, but you can do it. You're an ER doc. You're good. This is in your wheelhouse. You can get really, really good at this. I think you can get as good or better than pretty much anyone in the medical system, to be honest, because you've got such a wonderful space to work with. And with that, if Dr. Andrew Herring hasn't fired you up about pain management for patients with opioid use disorders, then I don't know what will. Let's do better for our patients. Thanks for listening to the ASAP Equal Network Opioid Initiative Series. Listen to the other Equal podcasts on SoundCloud or iTunes or view the webinars on the ASAP Equal website. Until next time, let's keep the opioid epidemic conversation and harm reduction efforts going.